0: The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Kind of through a, what do you call it, a monkey ranch into the plan today, because I would be normally speaking from the Gospel of Matthew and dealing with uh, as this last part in uh, chapter, end of chapter 27, chapter 28, about the resurrection of Christ. And over the course of the next month or so, we're, we're going to be talking about uh, those issues and have been uh, in the last couple of messages, too, as we talk about he is alive. He, he is alive. That's why we're here today, because Jesus is alive. But I decided today that I would depart from our study of the Gospel of Matthew. I knew many of our folks would be away and I suppose, I hope that, that many of them would like to hear the continuing story that we have going on towards the end of the Gospel of Matthew. So I'm going to interrupt that for, for a little bit today and we're going to talk about something else. But you'll you'll see as we get into this that Some of what we've studied in these past few months does have, and the past few weeks especially, does have some bearing on what I have to speak about today. Yesterday, of course, was the 4th of July, and this will be the strangest Independence Day sermon, perhaps, that you've ever heard. Uh, On Wednesday evening, I told our Fundamentals class that this was going to be a message today, that you can't sleep through part of it and catch up a little bit later Kind of have to pay attention all the way through to, so that you get what i 'm trying to say here, so i 'm going to ask you just just pay close attention, and it still might not make any sense uh, i don 't know, but we're, we hope that it will but i 've been doing a lot of thinking lately of, about how depressing things are. Uh, we were traveling in Canada um, a few weeks ago, and i just i was thinking i watched the news a few nights in Canada, and i I kind of noticed how people there just don't get real excited about what's going on in government. Maybe that's just me. Maybe I, I wasn't listening to the right things, but it just didn't seem that, that the Canadians would get into the political process like we do here. So I thought, well, maybe it would be a good thing if I moved to Canada. And then I wouldn't get so riled up about things like I like I did this morning. But but I, I, I think about things that are depressing. And you think about what the Supreme Court did in this recent uh, decision about uh, marriage. You think about what Congress does and doesn't does and doesn't do, and finally you get depressed by things because you you realize that we are a Christian who try to think rightly in a very wrongly thinking world. And while thinking about those things, I had to remind myself of just what I said in the class this morning: that the government doesn't rule my happiness, the government doesn't rule the joy and peace and contentment that I have in my heart. That comes from Jesus Christ and Him alone. All of that is in God's hands. So I don't have any reason as a Christian to be depressed about anything that's going on in the world. And that brought me to the scripture as I was thinking in Philippians chapter 4. It's one that's very familiar to you. Uh, Philippians 4 and verse number 8. This is where the Apostle Paul says, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just... Whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things. And I hope that you as good Bible students, you recognize that whenever you see a verse that begins with a word like finally, you know that that has to be a summation. It has to be some sort of a conclusion about things that have gone before. And for you to understand... Uh, Really what Paul is talking about here in this verse, you do have to read the other parts of the book of Philippians, the first part, so you see when he says finally what he actually means by that that word. So you have to read the entire letter and what you find out is this is a summary statement for what Paul has taught in this book and what he's teaching is the life of joy and contentment, a life of peace for a Christian and how do you live that life. Now as Paul's letter to the Philippians begins, he, you would never guess that he was going to end this letter on this kind of a note, such an upbeat note. You wouldn't guess that because he starts out talking about his own suffering, his own afflictions. And then he says, I know that you're going through the very same things. And then in that first chapter, he just ends up saying, that's expected. There's going to be hard times. There's going to be suffering for people who believe in Jesus Christ. And so as he writes those things, there's all the ingredients of depression that are there. And if you never get the right perspective, as Paul did on those kinds of things, if you never get that right perspective, then you're always going to be destined to be controlled by circumstances. When your job is bad, life is bad. Job is good, life is good. When um, finances are bad, your attitude is is bad finances are good and you feel a lot better it's always this swing this reversal up and down roller coaster ride that you're on according to circumstances even things that happen in the church can sometimes turn you off and you just what am I going to do and it's, life seems miserable well in chapter 4 Paul gives the antidote to that kind of depression or to depression and his antidote is a change of mind it's a switch up In the things that you think about. Now pay close attention to me today because we want to talk about how that happens. How can you have that, or how does that change of mind take place? So he says here in Philippians 4 verse 8, he says, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, and if there be any praise, think on these things think on these things now i'll tell you something if there ever was a verse of scripture that's been misused it's philippians 4 chapter 8 some take what paul has to say here and they want to reduce it to a philosophy of life some take this text as a text proof for the power of positive thinking and they, so, they throw out that finally that begins the verse and they divorce it completely from what Paul has said before in the first part of this book. Now I'm going to explain to you in the second part of the message why this is not just a philosophical statement and why Paul is not trying to use psychology to correct the ills of the masses. But before we get to that, we have to understand what God does with the mind and we see, have to see how the thinking cannot be corrected without him. So we'll look first of all at the values of the mind and by that I mean the values that shape your mind. Now all of you know that in our political process in these past few years uh, you have candidates that are always talking about family values. We need to elect people that have family values. Well, that's not what I'm talking about here. I'm not talking about family values in a political process. I'm not going to give you a psychological view um, because there are plenty of people that are far more qualified to talk about psychology than I. But what I want to give you is just a short theological biblical view of the difference of the mind before and after salvation. And the Bible deals quite extensively with the mind, or if you prefer to use uh, biblical terms here, if you want to talk about the heart. Essentially, we're saying the same thing. What is in your mind, what is in your heart? The Bible says that what's there is not really very good. In fact, it's very, very bad. Whenever you talk to unsaved people, you can, you can anger them. Uh, you, you can get on, under their skin very quickly by telling them what God thinks about their thinking. The Bible says that all of us have a problem with our mind, and so our thinking can be referred to as the chaos of a reprobate mind. This is our problem, the chaos of a reprobate mind. So we can start with that because the natural man and by which I mean natural man, it's the person in the flesh, the person every person born in the world really, has a mind that is immoral, it is improper and it's unrighteous. And there is no such thing as a good, wholesome, well-adjusted, well-meaning, righteous person in God's eyes. God doesn't look at the human race in that way. There is nobody that's like that in God's eyes. The scripture actually says that all of us are depraved. And if you take a look at Romans chapter 1, you'll find a whole list of the characteristics of the natural man, and you'll find that Paul comes down to this conclusion in Romans 1.28, when he says, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. Now, you might not like it, but we can take what's happened in this recent Supreme Court decision and plug it right in to Romans 1.28. And say, thinking has gone wrong, thinking is is upside down, but it's always been that way. This is just another manifestation of the depraved mind or the depraved heart of humanity. God gave them over to a reprobate mind. That doesn't mean that God created that mind in them. It means that He let them go on and do what was already in their mind to do. You know the story? Man was darkened by the fall. And so what follows here in Romans 28 is just a list of depravity that flows out of this darkened, disgusting mind that will not submit to the Creator. And then further, the Scripture says we're also blinded to the truth. Even if the, and the truth is out there that we don't have the ability to see it. We don't want to accept it. I mean, even if we could see it, we're not incapable or we're not capable of handling that truth that comes to us. And truth is not actually what you want. We're content to wallow in the corruptions, corruption of our mind, and we don't really want to get out of that corruption because that's what we like. Those who preach the power of positive thinking are dealing with people that have negative minds. They're dealing with people that are still in their depravity when they try to think positively. That positive thinking is tainted by that depravity. And so the best that you'll ever get out of it is a temporary relief, a temporary lifting of what you are. But then, eventually, it's all going to sink right back down to where it was before because you can't get out of that depraved mind. Now, the whole point of this is that man is controlled by what is in his mind. And we act according to that, and we're incapable of acting outside of of what's in the mind or in the heart. The proverb says, as a man thinks in his heart, that's what he is. And so we are depraved, Scripture says, and the only thing that's going to come out of someone who is depraved is depraved actions. We're not at all surprised by what's happened in this court decision. Eventually it was going to get there. Because what comes out of a depraved mind is depraved actions. Now Paul's advice here in Romans 8 can't be reduced to a philosophy of life that works for everybody. I mean, here, here we are. We just take Paul's advice pill, and so we live happily ever after with it because we can't do it because the natural man is incapable of thinking of what Paul says here, thinking on these things. And when Paul wrote these words, he was dealing with a world that was saturated with Greek philosophy. They also used words like Virtue. In fact, many believe that when Paul wrote this, he was actually throwing their own words back at them, showing the contrast of what the Greeks called virtue. I mean, the Greeks were always concerned with the mind and how to deal with all the difficult issues there were simply by harnessing the mind. And in the first centuries of Christianity, one of the, one of the greatest fights for maintaining the truth of God's word was to keep it all from turning into just another philosophy. Just right out there with Greeks and Romans or whoever, and, and uh, the, the, the gospel was going to be just a philosophy that some people have, and that's what had to be fought. So the Greeks were also speaking about virtue. They talked about thinking higher thoughts, but they did that merely as a way of diverting the mind around their problems. The idea is what you do is you root out problems, you root out things like fear by thinking of something else. Think different kinds of thoughts, bigger thoughts, and then you won't have time to think about fear. And did you know, very sadly, that there are many Christian preachers who preach this passage of Scripture in, ver- in the very same way? That the thing that you do is you just replace your bad thoughts with good thoughts, and those good thoughts become the filler That fill up the mind, that that mind that has all these things rattling around inside of it and the good thoughts become the filler so you can't think about bad thoughts any longer. True Christianity never approaches it that way. This is not the avoidance of bad thoughts and skirting around problems as if they don't exist. Know what the gospel of Jesus Christ does. It meets problems head on and solves the problems. Well that brings me to then... The comprehension of the renewed mind. A renewed mind is one that has embraced the truth of the gospel of Christ because it has been changed from the rule and the dominion of our inherent depravity. That's what we say or what we're talking about when we speak of being born again. That's the renewal. It's not a renewal of the flesh... Just as Jesus had to teach Nicodemus, he said, you don't enter a second time in your mother's womb. That's what Nicodemus said. That must be the solution of what you're saying. And Jesus says, that's not what it is. This is a whole thing that takes place by the Holy Spirit of God. It's a renewal of the Spirit so that the Spirit controls the actions of man. And so it's a reversal of the characteristics of the mind that we read there in Romans chapter 1. It's a removal of those blinders of the natural man. Now this is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. He says, For what man knoweth the things of a man, save the spirit of man which is in him? Even so, the things of God knoweth no man but the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. Which things also we speak, not in words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. Now the new birth is the renewing of the mind, so that the things of God that Paul is talking about here, the things of God aren't foolish to us any longer. Things of God become understandable. And let me throw in a point of doctrine for you, one one that you should readily see. And that is that the reason that regeneration must precede faith in the logical order is that the gospel would never make any sense to the unregenerate mind. The mind is not capable of processing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And folks, that is a very essential part of our theology. It's why we reject decisional regeneration. Regeneration. Man cannot be regenerated by God simply offering him the gospel, a choice to believe or not to believe, because in that unregenerate state, he cannot believe. His mind is not capable of that. He's lost the ability to believe God in the fall. And that's why every person has turned against God. So when a preacher says, well, God's done all that he can do for you, Christ has died for your sins, now it's up to you to believe, that preacher leaves you right where he found you. You see, God has to go beyond the offer of the gospel. He has to secure your belief by illuminating your mind to it. Causing you to understand it. And that's why we say that God's grace in salvation and regeneration is effectual. It always does its work. And so sometimes we put the word irresistible there. That's not the best word to use for because it conjures up the wrong ideas, actually. But that's a point of theology. It is... God's grace is effectual because God opens our minds. He illuminates our minds so we can understand the gospel of Christ. So you see, you you can't read, or I can't read 1 Corinthians 2.14 without throwing in that point of doctrine because this is what takes place in the process of renewing the mind. That when God illuminates the mind through regeneration, then there is comprehension. In verse 14 of 1 Corinthians 2, God's way It's foolishness at first. It's foolishness at first. But then when the Holy Spirit comes with illumination, that's when we have comprehension. Well, this is what allows Philippians 4.8 to have its proper effect. We can think rightly in a wrong-thinking world because our minds have been renewed. This is actually what Paul called the new man. A new man. We're, we're different. We're not the old person that we used to be. When Christ saves us, when he regenerates us, we become new people. This is what he writes in Colossians chapter 3. He said, lie not one to another, seeing that you have put off the old man with his deeds. Now, th- there's the reason why you don't live like you did before. That's why you want to do what God says to do and you want to live for him. It's because that old man has been put off. You become a new person in Jesus Christ. And then he says, and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. That's the restoration of what we lost in the fall. We lost the image of God in our morality in the fall, but we regained that in Jesus Christ. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? We have our minds renewed into the image of God, into the image of Jesus Christ. Well, now we're getting down to the crux of the matter, we're renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created us, which brings us then to the second part of the message, and that is the virtues of Christ. Now Paul speaks about the conflict that he has in his mind when he thinks about problems that were going on in the church at Laodicea and church at Colossae. And he wrote in Colossians chapter 2, that their hearts, speaking of those churches, that their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love and unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Well, I said in this part I would explain why Philippians 4:8 cannot be reduced to a psychological proposition. Paul did not say, think on these things, because these represent good ideals. Don't think on these things as something that's intangible, that this is an ethereal proposition. And you can do that. You can think about grass, you can think about trees, you can think about the blue sky. And people reduce what Paul is saying here to those kinds of things. Things like this. Have you stopped to smell a rose today? Have you put a seed in the ground And watched a plant spring out and new life come forth. And they think this is the idea that Paul has. But this is not about cute little baby chicks. And it's not about springtime. It's not about going around smelling flowers. It's not an abstract idea that doesn't have anything tangible behind it. Just a way of occupying your mind because it's been filled with everything else. Martin Lloyd-Jones made this statement in his book, The Life of Joy and Peace. He said, the New Testament never asks us to contemplate ideas. It always calls upon us to look at the person. Now, in in that sentence, the word person is capitalized because you probably figured this out by now, that that person is Jesus Christ. In Him are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so when you look at Philippians 4.8, you're not looking at, at detached ideas. These things are not detached ideas. This is not a philosophy. This is not, not something wispy and ethereal that you're looking at. You're looking at the person. You're looking at the one who embodies all of the virtues that are spoken of in these scriptures. And that's why it can't be a philosophy for the masses because Jesus is only real and understandable to those who have had their mind renewed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Salvation gives us the capability of thinking in a different way. Uh, you, you, You very well know that philosophers will take Jesus' words and they put them on par with Confucius and Aristotle or Socrates or... Confucius, Plato, put them on the same level as them. But when you know the person who's behind these sayings, it becomes convicting and transforming. Nothing could be clearer about that than when Jesus talked about or preached the Sermon on the Mount. And there in the Sermon on the Mount, you are confronted with the person who takes all ideas and philosophies and opinions of men and stands them on their head. We're confronted with true righteousness and how that we can't be holy and righteous and good without the person jesus christ i'm prompted to this kind of thinking of by what we studied on the cross in these past few weeks in matthew 27 what was christ willing to do for us thinking the good thoughts of philippians 4 8 is relating to jesus christ and they don't mean anything at all unless you attach them to the person in other words, our thinking has to be ruled by the gospel of Christ. Every action that we take must be ruled by the gospel of Christ. And so when Paul said, think on these things, he was actually taking us right to the, core of the heart and core of the gospel itself, which is none other than Jesus Christ. Well, you would expect when you hear a sermon on Philippians 4.8 that each one of these sayings that Paul says here, each one of these things he says to think about, that you would break them down individually as to what they mean. And we're going to do that, but not as most do it. We're going to break down these things and apply them to Jesus Christ. For instance, it's not to think on things that are honest, because honesty is the best policy. It's not to think about things that are just, because we as Americans believe in liberty and justice for all. That's not what this means. That's the Greek philosophical approach. And that's the one that's often substituted by preachers in the Christian church as well. Now these are characteristics of Christ so that we say, think on these things. What are we doing? We're thinking on Christ, and I hope that you get that, we're focusing on Christ in these words of Philippians 4.8, and what Paul says here summarizes what's gone on before, and when he does that, what's he doing? Well, he's taking these people back to chapter 2, and in that chapter, you remember, this is where it talks about the condescension of Christ, how that he was willing to leave heaven, to step down, to come to this earth, to give his life on the cross, to become an obedient servant, obedient even unto death as it says in that second chapter. So he's taking us back to the person who humbled himself and went to the cross. So let's take a few minutes to look at him, because why are we here? To exalt Jesus Christ, aren't we? And this passage does it oh so well. Think on these things, that's thinking on Jesus Christ, exalt him because of his virtues, how great that Jesus Christ is. So he says, finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true... Think on these things. So what about Christ? Well, first we can say about Him. Christ is the treasure of truth. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 1, 14, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John one seventeen. for the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. So when you think on truth, you're thinking of the gospel. Christ died, Christ was buried, Christ arose from the dead, like the lady sang about just a moment ago. That's the definition of the gospel according to Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. The way of salvation came by Jesus Christ. The remedy for the curse of sin came by Jesus Christ. The renewal of our depraved mind came by Jesus Christ. And so despite the relativism of a pluralistic society, truth is found no place else but in Jesus Christ. He is truth. So when Paul says, think on truth, he means to abandon all vain philosophies. Paul said to the young pastor Timothy, O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust. Avoid profane and vain babblings in opposition of science falsely so called. And there, of course, you understand the, science, the word science means knowledge. The gospel was committed to Timothy to avoid all knowledge that is in opposition to that gospel. Isn't that something that we need to hear in a world that's gone wrong? Let's eliminate everything that is opposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's why you and I as Christians can have a holy, righteous indignation about what's going on in this country. Because we oppose everything that is against Jesus Christ. Then he says, finally, brethren... Whatsoever things are honest, think on these things. That tells us that Christ is worthy of worship. We say, well, how do you get that out of the passage? Well, the word honest is best described as honorable, and things that are honorable means things that are worthy of our respect. And actually, the root word here is the word reverence. Reverence is about worship. To think on Christ is to think of him as the person who is to be worshipped. And when we think on him, in turn, we think about things that are respectful. And when we think on things that are respectful, it turns into our actions. Now, this, this is great encouragement for us to be very serious-minded people. Now, it's often noted that Jesus was not what you consider a hum- humorous person. Uh, we, we never read in the scriptures anywhere that Jesus laughed. That doesn't mean that he was sad. It just means that he was very serious about what he was doing. You know, sometimes I look at the advertisements for churches. You may see them on billboards. You might see it in the paper or hear it on television. You listen to the advertisements and they'll say things like this. Well, you'll really like our church. You'll like our pastor because his sermons are humorous. They're culturally relevant. Isn't that an interesting thing? You'll like it because the sermons are humorous and culturally relevant. I would never place value on a preacher's sermon because it's funny. Because there's humor in it. Or that it's culturally relevant. Because I'll tell you this, any time that you exposit the Word of God, it is culturally relevant. Everywhere and every time, God's Word to anybody who hears it is culturally relevant to them. So that's no great thing to say, oh, we got a pastor who has culturally relevant sermons. Well, good for you. Then you got somebody that preaches the gospel of Christ, who preaches the word exposit scripture, because it's always culturally relevant. Now, I remember there was a lady who attended here some time ago, and I, and I met with her after the service one day, and she said, I like your sermons because you have a sense of humor. From that day forward, I didn't tell jokes anymore. I hardly, yeah, well, not exclusively. I mean, you, do you, you ever hear me tell very many jokes? Oh, no, I don't really tell jokes because I don't want people to remember the sermon for jokes. I want them to remember what's said because of truth. Humor doesn't rule. Truth rules. Well, it turns out that this lady left because I confronted her one day with too much truth. Humor wasn't enough to hold her here. See, what we do is very, very serious business. When I preach, I want to honor Christ. I want to exalt him. I don't care what you think about me. Well, I care about that, but that's not the real important thing. If I don't show you Christ, if I don't lift him up just as we're doing today and talk about his characteristics, who he is, and I want you to promote how funny I can be, you got the wrong guy and you're here for the wrong purpose. We need to hear about Christ. I remember my sister telling me that there was a, a guy in his, her church that, that um, sort of measured sermons by jokes. Only he did it in a different way. If you told a joke, it was always a bad sermon because he didn't think you ought to tell jokes in a sermon. Finally, brethren, he says, Whatsoever things are just, think on these things. Now, third, thirdly, we see Christ is the revelation of righteousness. Things that are just means things that are right. That means things that are righteous. And what is Jesus? He is true righteousness. Now, again, that Sermon on the Mount, which I recommend that you read, Matthew 5 through 7, read the Sermon on the Mount, and, and you'll see that that sermon is the ultimate revelation of Christ's righteousness. In chapter 5 of Matthew, you see the Beatitudes, and the subject of that is the characteristics of people who are in God's kingdom. We are a kingdom of the righteous, and the only way that we get into that kingdom is by the righteousness of Jesus Christ himself. And this is what Jesus said in Matthew 5.20, For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Well that was a hard saying because the people thought the scribes and the Pharisees were the most righteous than anybody could be. They couldn't imagine anybody who's more righteous than scribes and Pharisees. But what they had done, scribes and Pharisees, they had lowered the standard. Now, if we're talking here about a philosophical approach of Philippians 4 8, then it leaves people looking at the lowered standard. If you think that things that are just, uh, think of things that are just and you compare them to the best standards of men, you, you always end up evaluating yourself by the wrong standard. It's not God's standard. Do I need to remind you what God's standard is? Jesus followed all this up by saying in Matthew five forty eight, Be ye therefore perfect, even as the Father in heaven is perfect. How are you going to do that? How are you going to be perfect? Husband or wife, you know, one of... The other already says they are. But how are you going to be perfect? Well, when you think about Christ, you start to think about the truth of who you are. How unworthy that you are. And then you become appreciative that Christ would come and live and die in order to make you truly righteous. And then what he does? Upon faith in him, he imputes or he charges, he credits your account with his own righteousness. And that's what the Bible calls your justification. I think that what Paul means to preach to us is to think about how much that Christ gave up. Go back to Philippians chapter 2 and think about that condescension. And when we think about how far he came down, that elevates us. That gives us higher thinking. Think what he did in coming down and that takes us to the very heights of the majesty of God. I think that when I think on things that are just, or when we do, our our desire will be to do the righteous acts of God. Things like loving God and loving one another. You know what Jesus said about those two things, loving God and loving one another? He said that fulfills all the law of God. That wraps it up right there. Love God, love your brother. That's the comprehension of the full, or that is the full complement of the Ten Commandments. And God's commandments are righteous and just. Jesus said in Matthew 22, Jesus said to him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Fourthly, he says, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are pure, Think on these things. So, fourthly, Christ is perfect in purity. Perfect purity sounds redundant to us. But aren't we thinking about the superlatives of Christ? We think on Christ's purity, and what it's speaking of there is his holiness. Now, what, what do you suppose was the biggest hurdle that the Philippians faced in living for Christ? We don't actually see a lot of it in this letter, but we certainly do, when you read the first and second letters to the Corinthians. That was a society, a society that was sexually charged. Corinth was one of the worst places in the world. They had a worldwide reputation for prostitution and homosexuality. And Christians in Philippi weren't, weren't immune to that because they were part of that same pagan worship. The worship of these people combined those things. Prostitution, homosexuality, that's all a part of their worship. And these are people who had been pagans. They're converted pagans. And they weren't immune to the same sins that the Corinthians lived in. So when Paul speaks about purity, he has those kinds of things in mind. And he's calling them to the holiness of Christ. Live like Christ. Now do you think if Paul had a view of Greek philosophy, if that's what he's talking about, they could ever get that across? No, that's, their, that's, that's the thing they're involved in. That's the thing that's their complete downfall, it seems like. Oh, he can't be talking about Greek philosophy. He has to be talking about a totally different principle altogether. The example must be Christ, and the thoughts must be on the person of Jesus Christ, because the very best among them was still a sinner. Even though they had received Christ, they were still sinners, and they still needed him to keep them in the way that they should go, keep them from thinking the wrong things, and evidently that's what they've been doing. Otherwise, he wouldn't say, think on these things. He's contrasting that to what they had been thinking about. Now, if you'll notice there in Philippians chapter 3, verses 18 and 19, Paul said, For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. In other words, there are people in the church going the wrong way, walking the wrong way, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is their shame, who mind earthly things. What he's doing is calling them to the chastity of, of Jesus Christ, Peter said, "For even hereunto were you called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow in His steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in His mouth. So thinking on Christ's purity lifts our minds out of the gutter of this grossly immoral society that is now being forced upon us, even forcibly promoted." By our own government. Next he says, finally my brethren, bear with me, we're going to get through. Finally my brethren, whatsoever things are lovely, think on these things. So, fifthly here, Christ is amiable and adorable. The word lovely is really kind of interesting because of all the words that are used about Christ in the New Testament, this is the only time that this word is used. He is lovely it means amiable. It means pleasant and attractive. And isn't amiable a great word for Jesus Christ? He's such a great companion. Uh, Proverbs says, A man that hath friends must show himself friendly, and there is a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. And it may very well be that when Solomon wrote that proverb that he had David and Jonathan in mind. First Samuel says that they were so close that they were knit together. They were inseparable. That, that's what he's talking about. And doesn't that speak very clearly of Christ? In, in that passage that we read at the end of the 10 o'clock hour, in Romans chapter 8, Paul spoke of adversity after adversity that comes upon Christians. And then he says, or, or he precedes that, all those adversities, by saying, who can separate us from the love of Christ? There's probably not a more comforting word and this whole list of things that Paul says to speak of then this. No matter what they faced, even that death that he talks about in chapter 1, the afflictions that they're going through, it's not to be worried about because Christ is there to go through them with it. Or go with it, go with him through all of those troubles. I'll never leave you or forsake you. That's what God says. Even in death, God doesn't forsake us. In, in, in the Psalms, it's his precious In the eyes of the Lord is the death of his saints. Why? Because that brings us face to face with Jesus Christ, who is the object of our adoration. So it brings the object of adoration in contact with the objects of love. And those two things are a perfect fit. This is why it's so great to think about Christ. Philosophy never benefits you with those kinds of appealing thoughts. A friend that sticks closer than a brother is great encouragement in times of trouble. You ever had to go through something and you didn't want to do it and you said to a friend, I can do it if you'll go with me? That's what we have in Jesus Christ. You can do it because he's with you. He'll go with you. He is lovely. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are of good report, think on these things. And here is that last one. Christ is resplendent in reputation. That's what good report means. What kind of reputation? You remember five times that Pilate said, I can't find any fault in this man. He kept being accused. and He said, I can't find any fault in him. There's nothing to accuse him of. Finally, they came down to simply false accusations because there's nothing to accuse him of. So you have Pilate. You have Pilate's wife. You have Herod. You have Judas. You have the Sanhedrin. You have a thief on the cross. All of them say, there's no fault in him. Wherever he went... The reputation preceded him. Crowds didn't come out to hear him because he was a hateful man. And they didn't show up because he treated them badly. They came because they knew his reputation. He helped people. He healed people. Everybody that Jesus touched was changed by him. And you could say also that he was known for his brutal honesty. That they could... They, they tried to make every accusation against him stick. I mean, they, they tried to shame him and the woman that was taken in adultery and they tried to get him to say something wrong about that. And, and what did he do? He just turned the thing around and made them ashamed of themselves. Jesus knew how to do that. They tried to get him to defy Roman law or to defy God's law. They didn't care which it was. Just something they could accuse him with, but they couldn't do it. His reputation was always stellar. He always had a good name when he's honestly evaluated. Now, Paul encouraged the Philippians to think on the highest principles... Rome was always accusing Christians of many, many different things because they were trying to make up for their own deficiencies. When something went wrong, they blamed Christians. And goodness knows that Christians have plenty to be blamed for as far as what we are in ourselves. We have plenty to be blamed for, so what we can't do is hand over the darts that people use to stick us with. And how many times has this happened? I mean, the the, the Corinthians needed to have a Christ-like reputation or they're not going to be able to reach the lost in their community. And that's no less true today that what we have done is our hypocrisies have kept many family members, many friends, many co-workers away from Jesus Christ. We hand them the darts by which we are, or the nails by which we are crucified. Our hypocrisy, not living for Christ everywhere they are as we always should. So he finishes finally with, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. He's telling us, keep thinking on Christ. And when you keep thinking on Christ, you'll keep coming up with more and more superlatives. So you see, Paul's not speaking here of a philosophy. This isn't detached, abstract thoughts. Our thinking has to be grounded in the concrete realities of who Christ is and what he's done for us. Alexander McLaren wrote, Thinking on these things is not merely meditating upon abstractions, but it's clutching and living in and with and by the living, loving Lord and Savior of us all. If Christ is in my thoughts, all good things are there. Another quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones, he said, The gospel does not say, now think beautiful thoughts and forget the others. The gospel comes to you and says, Are you as a Christian harboring thoughts like that? Did Christ die in order that you should go on thinking in that way and living in that way? Face yourself, says the gospel. Look at your own imperfections and then look into the face of Christ upon the cross and ask God to have mercy and compassion upon you. That is the Christian method. Not science of thought, but looking at yourself in the light of Christ and what he has done for you. Bringing that sin, that foul, ugly sin immediately to him. Facing it yourself in his holy presence and believing truly and absolutely and implicitly in his power. In view of all this, I would suggest that what Paul was saying to the Philippians was this. Your whole thinking and all your actions must be controlled by the gospel. I think that's a great summation of Paul's summation. You need to be changed by the gospel because that's the only thing that gives you the ability to think Christ-like thoughts. This is elevating. It's stimulating. Only the gospel gives you the power to turn away from a depraved heart and to comprehend the things of God with a devoted heart. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Think on Christ from a heart that's been renewed by faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Then a last quote, quote. again McLaren says, you will not think on these fair forms and bring them into your hearts unless you turn turn away by resolute effort from their opposites. And McLaren there's speaking only of Christians. It applies to no one else. This is your antidote for depression. This is the very thing that's going to get you through the bad times and will sustain you in the good times, make you... Joyful in your heart, knowing Christ, thinking on these things, the virtues of Jesus Christ, is your antidote for the depressing things that are happening in this this world. Put Put all your hope and confidence in Him. Look to Him and fill your heart. Have your heart filled with the Holy Spirit of God. Think on these things. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word and the value that we receive by looking into it closely and understanding that everything that we read in Scripture is going to come around ultimately to Jesus Christ. All of these things that are written in Scripture are to magnify, to exalt Him, to help people see who Jesus Christ is, and especially a passage like this to help us as Christians to reflect upon where we should put all of our hope, our trust, what our lives should be like, Why do we live the way that we do when we know that Christ has done this for us? Help us, Lord, to understand that. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Roanoke Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California,